Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. And I'm Amy. And Erica is at home very, very, very sick. I feel so bad for her. She uh, is probably, she says she's the, the most sick that she's been in years, and she's very sad that we are recording without her. So she sends her love and her regrets. Um, Amy recently just celebrated a birthday. <laughs> Happy belated birthday. Thank you. Uh, you had a banging birthday party, apparently. I, I did. We went to West Park uh, Lanes, did some disco rock and bowling. It was I awesome. opted to not go because I'm a grandma. I went to bed <laughs> at 9.30. <laughs> but I did get a lot of sleep, so clearly that was probably the right decision. Oh, my God. Is this what's going to happen to me now that I'm older? <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, I mean, in fairness, I did do it to myself. <laughs> Shout out to team double up. But yeah. So how was your birthday? It was, it was awesome. It was yeah. really fun. People got super into it. I'm really cheesy. So I like a theme. I like an activity. I had loot bags. People wore fake mustaches and <laughs> I spent like a ton of money on glow in the dark, or like, um, glow sticks, glow necklaces, glow wands. And we just got really funky with it. It was good. Fun. Yeah. Fun. Yes. Very sad that I had to miss it. It's um, okay. I want to go back there. I should go back there for like just a regular Saturday yeah. hang. It's, it's a great time. Down. <laughs> um, maybe not at 10 p.m. All right. Fine. I could do a nine. Okay. That's good. That's reasonable. Yeah. But if you stay really late, they let you just like dance in the lane. Or at least they won't get mad if you just dance in the lanes. Oh, that sounds really fun. Yeah. What? They were they were very kind to our uh, to our group there. They sent me nice. a very nice note today, being like, "Thank you for coming. I hope you enjoy your many other 29th birthdays." As it was my 30th birthday. So amazing. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I uh, have been busy planning a Janet Jackson, Michael Jackson theme ride for my spin class. It oh, looks so cool. I loved your Michael. get up. Um, it was super fun I just did one before I came here Um, and yet you changed I'm so disappointed (laughs) I was so sweaty it was (laughs) disgusting you could have at least worn the hat and the curls for me come on dollars you look smoking thanks yeah Uh, (laughs) you did Michael proud I even had the the curl yeah Uh, anyway um, Erica actually was just published in the Ottawa Citizen with an op-ed it was about a town hall she attended last week in Ottawa on anti-black racism in the city. She didn't have many nice things to say about it. <laughs> to be fair, I think the, there were, yeah, not many, but the nice thing was it was well attended and the community was out for it. The like, you know, black community was out and very vocal and like took the panel to task. And I think that's awesome. But yeah. as far as what the panel had to say, not so much. Yeah, it was um, addressing, it was the uh, community response to a report presented to various community organizations regarding tactics for anti-black racism in Ottawa, and the panelists were all white. Yeah, representing the various city institutions like the police department, the school board, and and other kinds of, uh, yeah. Yeah, so um, check that out. Traditionally white spaces. In the Ottawa Citizen. Uh, We've tweeted it, tweeted out the link. We'll post it on our Instagram. So, yeah, stay tuned or 
check that out. Mm-hmm. We're holding uh, City Hall to task a lot lately. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's good. So, um, let's get into it. Sure. Uh, so this week in feminism, our first topic is a story from the the CBC. Um, so there is a sexual assault crisis in Nunavik, the Inuit territory in Quebec's far north. According to regional police, in two th- 2017 alone, there were 220 cases of sexual assault against minors and 226 cases of sexual assault against adult women in Nunavik. Nunavik has a total population of slightly more than 12,000 people. Many of the cases are attributed to workers from the south, working in the north on short-term basis without cultural attachment, attachments to the territory. Former Kativik chief of police, Michel Martin, who just ended his mandate as head of the Kativik police force, has participated in United Nations missions in the past. He compares his experience in Nunavik now to what he witnessed on those international missions. Quote, We saw this sort of behavior in international operations. People go to an isolated area for a short period of time. There are a lot of opportunities, less competition, and they are in the presence of a vulnerable clientele, especially when they are offered alcohol or drugs. It's a way of attracting and profiting off young women and men, end quote. That was a quote from uh, Chief of Police Michel Martin. Uh, Many of the Inuit women in Nunavik said that they are ready for their own Me Too movement uh, using the hashtag Uvangalu in in, in Inuktitut. So uh, this is, well, one, very interesting, but two, like, very, very sad. You know, it's a very isolated, small community. And, you Mm -hmm. know, this is a type of thing that happens a lot in the North. Mm -hmm. I think it's, um, yeah, I think it's interesting to take note of these stories. Um, You know, personally, I'm not a huge fan of the, I went on UN missions and in in poor developing countries that we often look down on, they also have these problems because it sounds very condescending. But I think it's important to recognize as well the diversity of spaces and regions in this in in North America and in Canada and in you know on Turtle Island where there is a variety of experiences that people have and not just rooting it in an urban context and urban police forces and those dynamics and yeah I mean the the there are so many um, different relationships that a lot I think a lot of people in the south aren't aware of that happen up north um, especially when people who aren't from that region go up north to work um, on it like as as was said in southerners going on a short-term basis working either in mines and some mining communities um, working uh, in construction which was uh, what this piece kind of reflected on Um, and it's very transient and people aren't they don't have roots when they go up they don't have that same attachment sense of responsibility to uh, the communities there and there is uh, there's definitely uh, yeah, problematic kind of behavior and relationships that form. Yeah, and so um, for those who aren't aware, a lot of um, quote unquote Southerners, as they refer to us as, who live not in the North, which and is I think it's it refers to also non-Indigenous people yes. and non-Inuit people. Yeah. Yes, um, going up north, you get paid so much money, and you just don't know what to do with it, and you're you're the. Pl- People always tell you that if you're going to go work in the north, you go with a plan. You go to spend three to five years there, mm-hmm. and then you come back. Mm-hmm. Because you go and you make your money, you can come back to a more urban area 
or more densely populated area. So you can buy a house, you can start a family and all of these things. And so, like Amy said, like you have no roots, you have no cultural um, attachment to the area. So you just don't give a shit about how you treat the people, how you treat the land, Mm -hmm. how you treat the people who are there all the time mm-hmm. and i should say it's also not like not just gendered workplaces male-dominated workplaces where that happens there's also a lot of teachers um that a work lot of up government nor- jobs. a lot of government jobs up up north um that southerners go in and and work in and i mean in schools what happens is you have teachers who are there on a short-term basis they don't have the same relationships with the students um and so that creates a lot of um, tension and unease and a lot of instability in, like, kids' lives. And so the teachers are, are there for a short stint and then go. And, like, that's, I think, really hard as well. So it, there's, yeah, there's, a, like, a lot of issues. But the sexual assault and uh, assault piece is really troubling. Like, the, the rates there. And those are the rates of people who report because this this article was mm-hmm. posted in terms, in the context of the avail- wide availability and the need for rape rape kits yeah. um in the territory and i mean that that's to, like you know god only knows how many other unreported cases there are and what the um actual rates of um other types of violence that are ha- that's happening um but yeah it's very um it's interesting to um kind of shake up our perspective here on what those dynamics are like um and not just always talk about again, Me Too movement or other types of um, discussions around sexual, like sexual violence uh, from just this one perspective of uh, a traditional workplace. Here you have um, issue of, of a race and, and that kind of intersectionality, but also the remoteness of the area, um, whether people have access to um, police services reporting mechanisms, how, cl- how vulnerable they are in terms of wanting to come forward, um, what the relationship and power dynamics between the parties at play, if it is teachers or folks who, um, you know, are leaving the next day. Sometimes it's people who work in the police forces, white police officers who commit these types of assaults. Mm -hmm. Um, So it, yeah, it's, um, so when they say vulnerable population, it it does sound a little condescending, but there is an element of that for sure, that there's a a preying upon, certainly financially, like as you said, people are going there with very self-interested drive mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah, not a lot of mind to what they're leaving and what they're um, taking in a, in a sense. Yeah. And, and these stories are just very important one for the media to cover, mm-hmm. but also for people like us to consume because these stories aren't going to get covered if people aren't reading them. And yeah. a lot of people who live in urban areas think particularly about the North, like, Oh, like, that is so far removed from anything that I can even comprehend that it doesn't affect me in the same way as something like that happens down the street does. But at the same time, these are humans and we are on their land and we should, you know, give them the same respect that we would give someone like our neighbor. Mm -hmm. And I think we have an accountability for people that we know who go up. Uh, to do this kind of work or or, um, hiring structures or whatever else. And, I mean, there are certain more places that have, like, quotas for hiring uh, people from the north. Um, So I know at, like, the mines they have to hire um, X amount of people who are from the north and then a a certain percentage that are northern and indigenous um, based on proportions, and that's from agreements that were made, uh, like, with the government and the corporations that open up shop um, to sort of make sure that 
there isn't this mass exploitation of either natural resources or even just taking of jobs by folks from the south, from people who should should be the ones benefiting from the economy of, of the land and territory up there. Um, so it comes out in a lot of interesting policy areas that, um, I mean, we should certainly turn our minds to. It doesn't, I don't think it matters so much that the population is small, but it is easy to, for people to dismiss that um, when, when they really think about it. But yeah. Our next topic is kind of one that we are going to be building off from our last episode. So the, we're recording this on Monday and the 60 minutes interview with Stormy Daniels or actually Stephanie Clifford, who's her given name, uh, aired over the weekend and it featured her sharing details of her alleged affair with Donald Trump. At one point uh, in during the interview, the following exchange took place between her and Anderson Cooper. Anderson Cooper asks, did you two go out for dinner that, that night? Uh, Stephanie Clifford says, no. Anderson asks, you had dinner in the room? And Clifford replies, yes. Cooper says, well, what happened next? Clifford replies, I asked him if I could use his restroom, and he said, yes, you know, it's through those, through the bedroom. You'll see it. So I, I excused myself, and I went to, to the restroom. You know, I was in there for a little bit and came out, and he was sitting, you know, on the edge of the bed when I walked out, perched. Anderson replies, and when you saw that, what went through your mind? And Clifford says, I realized exactly what I'd gotten myself into. And I was like, ugh, here we go. <laughs> and I just felt like maybe <laughs> it was sort of, I had it coming for making a bad decision, for going to someone's room alone. And I just heard the voice in my head, well, you put yourself in a bad situation and bad things happen, so you deserve this. And Anderson says, and you had sex with him. Clifford replies, yes. Anderson says, you were 27 and he was 60. Were you physically attracted to him? Clifford replies, no. Anderson follows up, not at all. She holds her ground and says, no. Anderson asks, did you want to have sex with him? Clifford replies, no. But I didn't, I didn't say no. I'm not a victim. I'm not... Cooper interrupts her and says, it was entirely consensual. Actually, that was a statement. He says, it was entirely consensual. And she replies, oh, yes, yes. So while this exchange and Stephanie Clifford's responses in particular seem innocuous, since she doesn't allege any assault against her, it kind of actually points to a bigger issue one that we've seen throughout this whole kind of Me Too movement, um, particularly in the in the story of Aziz Ansari, and that is rape culture. Um, the ingrained cultural belief that the comfort of men should be prioritized above all else, including a woman's own sexual desire. Um, I saw so many tweets about this today. Mm. I, I haven't, actually, so I'm really... Um interested in this exchange because I haven't listened to or watched the interview. Um, but yeah, this is so t such a textbook response. Like I feel like I've even had this conversation with people yeah. who've described similar mm -hmm. situations and it's, there's always that you don't, well, one, not wanting to be considered uh, a victim and that's totally legitimate, but the sense of that internalized guilt um, and the kind of dist like, 
distancing yourself from any ideas of, of rape or sexual assault, but then not quite kind of, and then yeah, these two linear paths of still very much feeling like you didn't really have a choice in the matter. Yeah, like I think we, people who are not necessarily supportive of the Me Too movement and are kind of giving, uh, pushing back against it and asking for due process, I think to those people, and I think particularly in this situation, people view sexual assault as very black and white, Mm -hmm. where it is, if you didn't say no, then it's not assault. Mm -hmm. It's not rape. Whereas those of us who are very much supportive of the the Me Too movement, um, we understand that assault is a spectrum Mm -hmm. and that in order for it to not be assault, you need to kind of very enthusiastically say, yes, yes, I do want to sleep with you. Yes, I do want to have sex with you. Yes, I do want to do X, Y, Z with you. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas for a lot of people, it's just like, I didn't say no, so therefore. Which, like, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because like even legally speak, like people who pointed, and I'm not going to get into my rant on due process because that's a whole <laughs> other thing, but. Um, people have a very limited understanding of, of what rape is, but even in, in the, and I, and I don't know about the law in the U S but even in Canada under the criminal code, our definition of sexual assault requires affirmative consent and actually has outlines different ways that you like that aren't consent. So intoxication, being coerced, all of that is not, is decidedly not consent and, and like lawmakers and then later judges in their interpretation, some, some better reading of that provision than others have said, um, you do actually need uh, affirmative consent. Of course there, again, there's always misreadings or misapplications of that in some decisions, but that's not the intention of the law. And so it's really funny that people cling to this idea and it's because they are so, because of how common this is this kind of engagement. Um, and so you can have all the laws you want on the books, but if people don't know how to properly engage and they don't know how to communicate, then they will internalize guilt. They won't, they won't know that they have um, more rights to stand on. And, uh, you know, aggressors like this will always be able to fall back on, well, the person didn't decline. And so therefore I was, I was in the right. So that's always really troubling. So I just want to kind of remind people of that, but that's not quite a defense. Even, even in, even in law, that's not a defensible uh, stance to take that someone just didn't say no. Yeah. And I think that it's really interesting that you raise that because I, for whatever reason, I forget exactly recently looked up the definition of Mm -hmm. sexual assault. I think it was to like, to, I don't know, clap back at someone yeah, on Twitter. Yeah, no, exactly. Get uh, them receipts. Like, <laughs> no more fake um, news. Um, and I think that there's just, a, yeah, a general misunderstanding of what sexual assault is and that it in- encompasses so many different things. And I think that the media does have a responsibility to, to play in correcting those facts because it's not just penis in vagina it's not yeah i mean it's it's yeah it's all sorts of, en- of engagement yeah. yeah and that of course really <laughs> that was really gross <laughs> but well well let's walk right past that um but it's also like the co- like the coercion power dynamics those are the bi- like those are the really big ones um and it's funny like even with the like headley case which we've been like fighting trolls back on like their idea that well you know people like there's so many people who are still following through on this idea of 
well, I would, I should have been so lucky as to have been like, you know, having sex. And some people saying I I would love to be raped by like, you know, whatever Jacob, whose name is not like registered in my memory because I don't give a fuck. Um, so, you know, like that, like hottered. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. It was, I was going to have to think about it. (laughs) I could see it in my mind. I've never had to say it out loud. So I feel very fortunate, but for some people they're like, I should, I wish. And then again, like that's actually like actively been repeated many times in online spaces. Yes. Someone actually tweeted, Oh, well we all knew what he was like with women. Yeah, no. And it's like, and and no mind to the fact that you could never, even as like a young person, like even as a teen, you can never consent to that kind of um, sexual engagement. Like if you're 13, 14, like it's so regardless of whether or not you think that you could or you want to, it's it's like kind of a clearly decided thing. But people still fall back on this idea of you know, celebrity, and it's kind of like the Donald Trump thing, like, I think Anderson's pressing on this idea, like, on some level, you were attracted to his fame, his wealth, like, he's not saying that, but he's sort of saying that, um, when he presses her about, like, you weren't attracted to him at all, like, there was that sort of expectation that, like, you know, on some level, maybe there was something that appealed to you, or, right. you know, that enticed you about that, that encounter, yeah. um, and, like, it, even if that is true, like, also whether or not she was attracted to him is irrelevant to whether or not she actively consented. Although, well, ultimately, exactly. she says it's consensual, like, but you can You can hear her justifying it kind of to herself while you put yourself in the situation and, therefore, you get what you... Well, and the question's live to that. You had dinner in his... Uh, you didn't go out for dinner. You had dinner in the room. Well, you know, like, yes. I mean, like, you know, I'm not I'm not saying I'm not at but like, all. But this, is a, but this is the same thing that people were saying about Harvey Weinstein and like, oh, well, yeah. you went to his hotel. Yeah. yeah. But it was a completely yeah. normal thing for yeah. that them yeah. to do in that industry. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I'm not saying that Anderson Cooper, Anderson Cooper's questions were necessarily sexist or leading into this kind of line because I didn't hear the whole interview. And I don't think I can make that kind of conclusion. Also think he probably has a decent grasp on the issues i bet i think he's asking the questions that viewers would have in their mind and probably would press him for not having asked and i think her her her, she had like honest and fine responses but it's for people to properly put out commentary to say none of that matters (laughs) like it doesn't matter that she was in the room and that they didn't go out for dinner and it doesn't matter that he paid for dinner and it doesn't matter that like exactly like the fact that being in someone's hotel room doesn't is not consent no you know going to someone's house like yeah or going to patrick brown's house is not consent (laughs) like being yeah a kiss is not consent have you ever do you watch flight of the concords yes you know the song a kiss is not a contract but it's very nice. Very, very nice. No, I don't. Just I because we're watched. playing tonsil hockey doesn't mean you get it. <laughs> I remember that. That's a very vivid line. Yes. It's so good. Anyway. <laughs> I just like I just thought of that. It just makes me really oh, it kind of gives me like I feel like people need that reminder. Yeah. I um, love parody music. But, uh, <laughs> have you heard unrelated the <laughs> um, Hamilton cover from Weird Al? Oh, no, I haven't. Oh, my oh God. God. It's the entire <laughs> story of Hamilton in one song. What? Oh, I need Using to find all of the, this. It's so good. That's awesome. So good. Um, anyway, um, I'm really interested in this idea, though, that, like, of rape culture. Because, like, mm-hmm. um, well, I'm not really interested in the idea. But, <laughs> but, interested um, in discussing but the, the idea. Fact, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, someone said to me, and I've mentioned this before, like, they get 
their back kind of like raises and they get a little defensive when on the pod here we say, fuck all men, like men are trash, blanket <laughs> statement, generalization. You know what? Fair. And to a degree, we're being dramatic. Yeah, I mean, it's like we're being hyperbolic. It's fun. Like, it's part of the appeal of... <laughs> and it's easier than qualifying everything all the time. We qualify a lot of things, to be fair. You yes. have to listen to everything we say. You don't you have to just pick and choose. <laughs> yes. But I am 100% over the idea that women are supposed to prioritize male comfort. Totally. To avoid humiliating, to avoid disappointing men. Because I don't give a fuck what you think. I don't mm-hmm. care. Absolutely. And, and a lot mean, of you have bad ideas and yeah. bad opinions. <laughs> totally. And so yeah. until you fix the ones with shitty ideas and opinions, you get a blanket statement. Mm-hmm. Sorry. The other thing I was thinking about, and I, I don't know how much this is true in Stephanie Clifford's case, but I mean, there's something too about her background and where she's coming from. And she like, Working in porn, working at like in a form of sex work, yeah, and that like, you know, aim to please like training and upbringing that yeah. she has. And I'm not saying like again, it's not about laying blame on her, but it goes again goes to the culture yeah. and how much people feel like they have agency to to push back. Um, and it's something that came up as well in our discussions when we did the orders up event around. Um, sexual assault in the restaurant industry, the sense that servers have that they have to please customers and not, um, you know, not make them uncomfortable when they, you know, when they approach them, that part of the job is to smile and, you know, laugh at the joke and pretend like you aren't offended. Um, you know, wear the uniform that's required of you and, and flirt, like flirt because your managers are looking over your shoulder and expecting you to kind of give this a particular style of service or whatever else. Um, and so there are a lot of industries where women work, where they are, they're, 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 I mean, Porn industry, sex work, obviously, is sexualized. That's in its inherent nature. Um, but just the idea that your persona then suddenly becomes all that. Um, and there aren't lines and boundaries. Well, and this is why Asian women are fetishized so much is because it's a traditionally very subservient culture. Mm. And that's why, you know, men, white men in particular, get, quote, unquote, yellow fever because they which I fucking hate. It's the cringiest word. It's, it's the cringiest expression. Listen, I, date, <laughs> I, I dated the guy, and after we broke up, he wrote on Facebook, no. he said, someone joked about how he had yellow fever, and he was like, ha-ha, like, uh, so funny. And I was like, not no. funny. This no. is 0% no. funny. That's so awful. I'm so sorry. Um, he's a dick. Yeah, clearly. Um, anyway, but yeah, this is the idea that like men have power over women, and men like women who will do whatever they want. And we'll get into this, I think, later Mm -hmm. um, in other discussions. But yeah, like, no. Mm -hmm. No. Not here for it. Totally. Fuck it. And our trash. (laughs) Donald Um, Trump is trash. Just your daily reminder. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, our last topic for this week in feminism is a study about the Me Too generation gap. So in February, trash man Bill Maher argued that young people were, quote, going to bleed what is so great out of life 
by being oversensitive and demanding complete safety in dating and sex. Oh, Sorry, that's so fucking dumb. Like, go fucking bungee jumping if you want like a lack of safety to bring like life, like life meaning back into your life. But like, um, he continues saying, "Quote: A police state, they always say, is the safest place to live, but you're in a police state. We don't want to do that with love." What the fuck is he on? <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't want to interrupt you, but like, what the fuck? Also, who says that? Is that an expression? What <laughs> is this? Oh um, my god, I can't believe they let him on the air. I don't know. So, uh, this brilliant, smart man, uh, Bill Maher, was amplifying a common criticism about young people and the Me Too movement. Almost since the current national conversation around Me Too and sexual harassment began, disagreements about it specifically whether the problems it is addressing are real, whether the movement has gone too far in trying to discourage sexual misconduct in the workplace and beyond, have been cast in generational terms, including right here on this podcast, Amy. Um, (laughs) We've written op-eds about Margaret Atwood being a bad feminist for not believing women and said many other times that uh, Margaret Atwood is generally just trash. So some millennial feminists have argued that the older generations are out of touch on the issues of sexual harassment and assault. When 50-year-old HLN host Ashley Banford criticized Aziz Ansari's accuser for harming the comedian's reputation over no more than a bad date, the author of the Babe.net story, 22-year-old Katie Way, responded by calling Banfield a, quote, Burgundy lipstick bad highlights second wave feminist whom no one under the age of 45 has ever heard of, end quote, which I would say is true because I have no idea who Ashley Banfield is. I feel um, like I've seen the name, but like the name doesn't yeah, stick. Yeah, m- me neither. And I'd, I'd like to think I know all the... Uh, bad feminists? All the relevant, like, so-called pop, you know, pop public feminists. Right. Yeah. Um, over at Jezebel, Stassa Edwards called out an older generation of feminism, arguing that, quote, second wave feminists have rationalized, normalized, and coded abusive predatory behavior as flirting, courtship, as a simple reality of being female, end quote. So the study we're going to be discussing is from, was conducted by Vox Media and Morning Consult, And it was on the Me Too movement and the so-called generational divide. It was a nationally representative sample of 2,511 women around the United States and found that a majority of women support support the Me Too movement, which held true even when they were looking at older women specifically. One of the questions was, generally, do you support or oppose the Me Too movement? Uh, women under 35, 71% supported it. And women over 35, 68% supported it. You know, pretty, pretty mm-hmm. exciting. Yeah. Question, how well would you say that the Me Too movement represents your interests? Women under 35, 58% said that it represented their interests well. And women over 35, uh, 52% said that it was representative of their beliefs or their interests. 
The more notable stat there, too, is that there's three options, uh, well, no opinion, and not well. And whereas under women under 35 say it doesn't represent their interests or represents their interests not well at all, 16%. Women over 35, 26% say it doesn't represent their interests at all. So, yeah, there is, like, there's a tension on that end of the spectrum. Yeah, I don't know what the logic would be there. I mean, it could be that they're not engaging in these issues or that they don't it doesn't come up in their day-to-day life like it's or they have other interests that may be gender like with sexism that don't present in the same way but yeah i mean we know how we feel about Uh these sorts of um another question asked how concerned are you about the me too movement causing women to be denied professional opportunities because men are reluctant to work with them uh there were five responses uh, very somewhat, no answer, not too much, and not at all. So women under 35 were very concerned uh, 31% of the time and somewhat concerned 29% of the time. So 60% of women under 35 felt that they were very concerned or had some degree of concern about women being denied professional advancement, which I think is interesting when you connect that to this the survey that Chatelaine did, the man mm. survey, and, and the, the number of men who um, said that they had never gained any benefit from being male. <laughs> On the same question, women over 35, uh, 23% of women over 35 were concerned, were very concerned about uh, deny, being denied professional opportunities, while 36% were somewhat concerned. Um, so what, that's 59% yeah, the same. It's kind of a wash, yeah, the for same. sure. Yeah. Um, Although there were 20% of women over 35 didn't really care at all. Yeah, and I think that one's explained. Or didn't care much. Yeah, and that's explained through, I think, possibly the fact that women who are further along in their careers are uh, more established, stable. If you're starting out and you've made yourself quite vocal on these issues and you don't have uh, much of a resume to go off of, like, of course, that may create some concerns for you, Um or you know you've ide- you know you've raised concerns in the past and maybe that will hinder your advancement. You're new. You're the easiest, f- f- you know, last one in, first one out kind mm-hmm. of thing, right? So, mm-hmm. um, uh, then the, they asked, "How concerned are you about men being denied due process when they are accused of sexual assault and harassment?" <laughs> Amy, what's your answer? Uh, <laughs> go fuck yourselves. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> um. I mean, we'll this do a special episode on Dupre. <laughs> Just yeah. Kidding. This one actually surprised me. Yeah, this is... Um, um, women yeah. under 35, 22% were very concerned about men being denied due process, and 28% were concerned about men being denied due process. Those are definitely, that's, like, millennials. Yeah, that's really upsetting. Like, solid millennials. Yeah. Not even those of us on the like higher end of the millennial spectrum. Yeah, no, this is um, it's troubling. I'm not I'm not surprised though. It is the most common comment you see um, people come to, and they'll say, you know, I support them. Like, there's always that like conditional statement. I support the movement, but you know, what about due process? I think I think we've this is where we've gone off the rails. Like, yeah. I support it in principle, but here's this other thing, and that kind of lines up with the other stats. Um, and there's just so much misinformation about what due process means, what people are entitled to, um, and w- like 
how that plays out. Like, so naming someone or saying that they are a harasser or abuser does not deny them due process. Like, you know, saying someone should face some consequence and work in their workplace without having first face or ever having to face criminal charges is not a denial of due process. That happens all the time. Um, with so many things. You don't have to file an assault charge if someone hits you, but you can file a health and safety complaint at work if it's your colleague. If someone, you know, throws a racial slur at you, you don't have to file a complaint with the police for hate speech, but you can certainly file a discrimination complaint or a complaint about health and safety or whatever suits the situation Mm -hmm. in your workplace. (laughs) Like, you know, people have very limited understanding of where what the legal consequences are and what law and and also the range of non-legal consequences as well and when we think of law we only think of criminality which is troubling for a number of reasons Mm -hmm. because that's also why a lot of workers especially young workers don't know that they have protections in the workplace they don't know you know, that they don't have to do, for example, unpaid internships or that they can complain under different legislation for being treated in in a multitude of ways, um, whether or not they have a strong employment contract or not, or whether or not uh, they're they're newer in a probationary period. People don't understand their rights in the workplace under a number of headings, not just Mm -hmm. sexual assault and violence. And so it's no wonder that there's this gross misunderstanding of what it means to uh, be protected from abuse when you're at work or, or by someone who's a, who's a colleague or, or someone who's not even a, you know, or in a non-work context, you can name and shame whoever you want in public. If you think that is true, if you believe that the, the X event happened, um, then you can, you know, say whatever. It's not libel. It's not defamation, um, unless it's unless it's false or you know it to be false. Right. That's it. And whatever follows from there, if a you know, like a radio station doesn't owe Headley due process not to air them, like <laughs> right, you know, like yeah. they're not bound by that. But people don't seem to have this understanding of um, what it, what is yeah what well one what due process means and what it doesn't mean. Um, so it's, and that's very much true of young people. Young people don't, I think, know their rights as, as well as they ought to. And that's because we don't do that kind of education or engagement. Mm -hmm. And it's, that's a huge issue. Again, not just for sexual assault or harassment, but for so many other things. Yeah. And so uh, this was very shocking to me. So like it was 60%, just shy of 50% uh, of women under 35 were very, were cons- had some degree of concern about due process. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's increased over time. You know, the longer we've talked mm-hmm. about it or you are supportive of it until mm-hmm. it's someone you know or it's a, one of your favorites yeah. and you're then you're like suddenly like, oh, well, that can't be true. That's not fair. You know, like mm-hmm. this we're saying with Headley, like I'm sure that people thought that they were probably supportive of it until it hit their ride or die band. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I think that that's certainly part of it. And the longer it goes on, the more uncomfortable people are going to be. Um, and that's kind of the funny thing about that Bill Maher comment about safety and comfort and people wanting to create exclusively safe spaces. It's like the people who are voicing this concern are voicing it be- like against the Me Too movement. And people like Bill Maher 
are uncomfortable and they feel unsafe and they feel threatened. And what they're asking for is a safe space on their terms, Mm -hmm. which doesn't shake up what their understanding of the world is. The moment you tell Bomar that these things are off limits, he feels that we're encroaching on him and suddenly he wants us to preserve what he's known to be safe. And that's male entitlement. (laughs) But I mean, no one's, yeah. Why can't it be safe for everyone and yeah. not just yeah. you? And, wh- and, and why can't you be momentarily uncomfortable, yeah, to have Heaven to face some, face some tough questions? I mean, he fancies himself an intellectual, but can't, it, it can't for a moment posit someone else's experience, like, you know, place yeah. himself in someone else's experience, um, which I think, um, yeah, it's the height of ignorance. But, <laughs> but uh, on the same question, women 35 and older, it was virtually the same percentage yeah. of women who were concerned about due process. That is absolutely shocking to me. That sounds, that's probably a bit hyperbolic, but no, like, no, no. it's very surprising perhaps is a better word than shocking. Um, because it seems to me given my Facebook feed and people I see on Twitter who are asking for due process are generally older. And that could just be because I am living in a little bit of a, uh, progressive liberal millennial bubble mm-hmm. and the people who are posting about the Me Too movement are very vocal about where their stance is and those who aren't posting about it just don't pretend it isn't happening. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard, to, it's hard to know from, I guess, our exposure, as you say, is quite limited and siloed to some degree or, or predetermined based on what our interests until we get trolled and we're often trolled by old men. So it's like distorted until I, until the, this last week when I started engaging with some of the Headley supporters that I like noticed that there are so many young women who do say these things. Um, and a little bit during the, um, Aziz story, but, uh, but that was a little bit different because of the nature of those allegations and how close people felt that th- their experiences aligned with what had happened in that story. And I think we're coming from a defensive place, which I understand. And I think there's a lot more nuance there than the Headley situation. But with Headley, people were and are like quite, mm-hmm. quite angered by this idea that they... there has been. No, and they, you know, and the pointing to mis, uh, misreporting of some minor facts, kind of like the, the Patrick uh, Brown thing. Yeah. Well, they said this concert was canceled because of the allegations, but it wasn't. And the concert had always been canceled. Like, it's like, okay, yeah, but like cool, that's but a like, minor, that's you do with the it's a minor fact that was correct. Like, it's like, look at how flawed the media is. They had made up their mind and who are they re- to report this? And there are no charges and you're, you can't be saying, you know, reaching these conclusions without first knowing what the, you know, cr- like criminal charges saying it's like well yeah we we may never like we may never actually know what happened no we depending on the evidence and what comes forward we may not know but we know what the accounts are we know there's a pattern and we know the that fact that they put out a statement that said we treated women shitty yeah they didn't outright deny it clearly they don't understand what the like what boundaries they should or should not be following and yeah, they didn't deny it. And all these women who are themselves supporters saying we knew what they were like. And that's the rock and roll. Even the defense in that CBC opinions piece uh, was more or less saying, um, yeah, one, we all we all knew about this. But also, why aren't we going after other bands, which isn't really which is also like who do similar things. And it's like it, it's not mutually exclusive. You can call Headley. And if you know the names of other bands who are out there raping their young fans, 
tell us like, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. share that info share cool. that information that sounds very newsworthy yeah exactly <laughs> let's project some no more one's saying, people don't do it <laughs> like, no one's saying don't call out bare naked ladies or yeah. whoever i don't know <laughs> That was just because they performed in the Chino. Oh, no. The first band that came People are going to come for them love, now. <laughs> love the Bare Naked Ladies. But it could be um, anyone. It could be our faves. And if it, if that's the case, I'd love to know. And, like, if you have that intel out there, like, you know, just because... Tell someone. Yeah, tell someone. Like, if it's it's not just Headley. We know it's not just Headley. We know it's a, it's a cultural crisis. Like, we know in music it's an issue. We know that, like... There, there, there is a history of a per, like yep. that we've been so permissive with people who are celebrities and rock stars to take advantage of fans and chalked it up to fans feeling like should feel so lucky as to experience this and have looked the other way constantly and and I mean there's well, no exactly what we were just talking about with rape culture yeah for sure so just because one one band gets called out doesn't mean that we shouldn't call them out because we haven't called out everybody else we're we're working on it. we're going down the list let's do this. <laughs> And I mean, the fact that we, oh, fuck, they just need to arrest R. Kelly. Oh, my. Yeah, you know, like there's so many of these people. Like we know we feminists have been working on this. We're not the ones out there denying that these yeah. things happen. Well, we, we know, know that. Why no one cares about what R. Kelly is doing. Yeah. <laughs> those black girls. Oh, it's so sad. It's so that story is so upsetting. Yeah. But in any case, I digress. Back <laughs> to the survey. Building off of the last question on the survey, we're talking about, you know, men being denied due process. The next question was asked, do you think it's an acceptable byproduct of the Me Too movement for some men to lose their jobs over allegations of sexual misconduct, even if those allegations are not backed up by concrete evidence? It's a terrible question. It's a very bizarre question. Even if those allegations are not backed up by concrete evidence, first of all, (laughs) no one should be fired for anything if it's not backed up by concrete evidence. That's just like the law of employment and labor. So good luck to any employer who tries to pull that (laughs) because it's not going to fly. Lawyered. (laughs) I mean, like what? (laughs) Yeah. like But also, yeah. Concrete evidence. Yeah, I mean, that could mean anything. Like, do you want to like watch, do you need a video of it having happened? Like, like, do you want to see like dick pics they yeah. sent me like I don't I mean employers have to investigate these sure. things and they have an obligation to do that and the, and even in any sort and of that's the due term, process yeah and that's the due process and it's not criminal and their standard of evidence is different and what they get to consider is different so it's not it doesn't have to be as uh the threshold's lower it's on the balance. It's like they're looking at it from a balance, balance of probabilities, right? So what is the likelihood of this happening? Not, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a criminal standard. Like, be- because they're not locking people up. They're yeah. m- disciplining you or maybe at worst taking your job away, which is, it, which is considered, like, the highest of, of penalties, obviously, in labor and employment law. Yeah. So th- that's not to be taken lightly at all. But there is a process that employers have to engage in. Their evidence could be we interviewed some people and they sounded quite credible and we there were a handful uh, and the you know the other guy didn't sound credible or he admitted to some things and we think that that's enough or we have a particular policy and this person knew about it or they had been or disciplined in the past previous or pattern of behavior previous pattern of behavior 
um, or or other discipline, and then this adds up as you yeah. know as part of a history of of bad. And like the fact that they're not contributing to a, like a, a positive work environment. Yeah, I mean, employers have health and safety obligations as w- uh, which have now been broadened uh, under the Canada Labor Code, and I believe now as well under or soon will be under. Uh, the Provincial uh, Employment Standards Acts and, and uh, Labor Relations uh, Acts have all been reformed to kind of expand sexual harassment and assault as part of health and safety, whereas before they had sort of a different place as part of discrimination uh, in human rights law. Now they're part of health and safety in a more pronounced way, and each employer has to have a policy to address these things. So there is a due process inherent in any like workplace and in employment situations with regard to uh, sexual, mis- sec- quote-unquote, sexual misconduct, sexual violence, sexual harassment. Um, but the idea, like, the, the, it's, it's a huge misconception that employers are out there dismissing people. <laughs> now, even in, like, even in the cases where people have, quote-unquote, lost their jobs, like Matt Lauer, mm-hmm. he was paid out, yeah. right? Like, he was paid out millions of mil- tens of millions of dollars. To the presumably to the end of his contract, as I understood it, if I recall correctly, yeah. and that is a standard practice in any employment situation that you can pay someone out and let them go without cause. Yeah, and that's sort of like the employer makes that and like cost benefit analysis of like, you how know, is it how is toxic this? is this person, or are we just done with them, whatever? And they have a right to pay people out and get rid of them. And that's a trade-off. And, and that's happened for in, in other cases as well. It's not that people were fired and then not compensated for it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's also like you're not... Yeah, anyway, so there's, there's all sorts of considerations. So this question is just like so poorly worded. It just feeds into this misconception that people are losing their jobs. Men are losing their jobs left, right, and center. Um, and, it, and frankly, in most cases, it's not feasible for employers to just dismiss people. Um, yeah. Because of the risk of getting sued for a wrongful termination, which is very costly. And here's the frustrating thing about sexual assault and sexual harassment in the workplace. And then I'll be done my rant. <laughs> <laughs> it's like in and like, I'm sorry, this is so luxury. Um, but in law, broadly speaking, and in employment and also in labor law. So labor law is a unionized workplace. Employment law is for people who have single contracts, one-on-one employment contracts with their employers, not part of a bargaining unit or a union. And in either case, the damages you get, the award you get for someone harassing you in the workplace or even sexually assaulting you is very limited. And it's capped under the Human Rights Act uh, in Ontario, or if you work in a federal jurisdiction under uh, the Can- Can- Canada Human Rights Act. And in those cases, it's it's capped at $20,000. That's the max amount of damages you can get. And in most cases, you're getting very little. You have to prove that you suffered a great deal to show that you deserve the max. No one gets the max, let me be clear. No one gets $20,000 for shit, for like very, very rarely. So maybe you're getting a couple thousand Maybe you're getting 10000 I think that's usually where the sexual harassment cases mm-hmm. lie around. Not a lot. No. And if an employer is doing a sexual harassment or sexual assault investigation, and they think, we might get it right, we might get it wrong, they're more likely going to chance on what, whatever, we'll get the sexual harassment case wrong. And even at worst, we get taken to you know, human rights tribunal or a grievance pr- arbitration um, or civil court 
we're really not owing that much in damages. We maybe owe this person ultimately $10,000 or yeah. we pay them the 10000 and settle it eventually. But if you fire somebody and you do it wrong, let's say you fire them you prematurely, you didn't have enough, you should have maybe just suspended them, but you go ahead and you let them go entirely and you don't pay them out, mm-hmm. then they can sue you for wrongful termination, mm. which is the value of how much they used to work for. So let's say someone made $80,000 a year and they worked there for, they worked in the, the workplace for 12 years. Typically you get paid, if you're in an employment context, not a labor context, you get yeah. paid one month per year of service. That's the shorthand. It's not perfect, but like that's the rough estimate. It may vary. So you, then you owe this person who's worked there for 12 years and made $80,000 a year, $80,000. Yeah. So it's not... For employers, they're less likely to make the take the risk on firing somebody where they may get that wrong, right. than pay the then you know follow through on disciplining or firing someone because of the sexual harassment. Um, it's a lot easier to look the other way, mm-hmm. and that's a big issue in uh, civil employment law that needs to be reformed, um, and in human rights law is broadening what these damages look like because mm-hmm. there's no deterrent for employers to take these matters seriously, and I think that's why the reforms around treating it as health and safety issue and broadening the procedural requirements for employers to have policies in place um, around. Uh, uh, an internal due process around sexual harassment and an investigative process um, for sexual harassment and assault. But that's only recent. And so for a right. long time, it's been, they've been quite dismissive of these types of complaints um, and, in fact, have no incentive to fire people over them. And that's true here, as I believe it's very much true in the U.S. So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> like, anyway, this question is nonsense. And unfortunately, a lot of people believe that this is a common occurrence. Well, yeah, and like the the results kind of reflect similarly to what the the previous questions results were ish. Women under thirty five, twenty five percent of women think that it's acceptable to fire someone without evidence. Obviously, forty eight percent think it's not acceptable. And women over thirty five, this is a kind of like this is a significant, a statistically significant difference, but like it's not a surprising. Um, result with 13% of women over 35 saying that it's not acceptable or so that it is acceptable and 65 saying that it's not acceptable to fire someone without evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want one more thing on this point. I just like think it's really important that people know that it's not in the interest. And I think a lot of people really feel this. It's not in the interest of women and the movement to have people fired right off the bat for misconduct, which is very generally construed in this question. Assault, that's a whole, like, you know, assault that is, like, more on the serious end of the spectrum, possibly. Because if that person continues to be a threat and doesn't show that they can be rehabilitated, that's a real issue. Mm -hmm. But harassment and, you know, more, you know, assault that's on a different, the different end of that gradient I think we have to look at correcting behavior. Yes, Other, because otherwise it just becomes someone else's problem. Well, that's it. They're fired. They go to the next workplace. They haven't learned anything, and they're going to reoffend. Yeah. So there is an obligation on employers and to you know send people out for for training, work on reforming, rehabilitating them. Yeah. And we also don't want to like criminalize this behavior either. Like the idea that people should just be filing charges, having folks you know locked up, I don't think serves anybody either. No. Because we know that that doesn't 
<laughs> help anyone. Very it doesn't help the communities yeah. that these folks come from. Where whatever communities they are, it doesn't help their families. It doesn't help uh, you know them when they get out and go back because prisons do a really shitty job of educating and correcting behavior because that's not the priority in Canada. Our, our you know prison system is not at all geared towards rehabilitation, which tragically. So I don't think I don't think any progressive-minded person is for the automatic termination of people's employment or the like lock them up yeah. attitude. But for some reason we've been characterized this way and it offends me so much. It's, and just like assault, it's the, the solutions for those accused of it. It's not a black and white situation. No, not at all. Um, and for most people, there is a complete lack of knowledge and maybe it's inexcusable that they don't know what the definitions are or that, you know, they've, they they're willfully blind to their actions, mm-hmm. but until they're confronted with that, there's no val like what's the value in letting them go, um, yeah. because it doesn't leave it doesn't leave them with space to correct. It may make them in fact more hardened in their view. Um, it makes victims out of the aggressors yeah. in a lot of in a lot of ways. And I don't think that's productive. Yeah. And there's so many ways that employers can address these issues. They can relocate the person uh, who is the aggressor so that they're away from the person that they've uh, harmed. They can So changing reporting structures, they can demote them, they can suspend them, they can send them to, thi- they can pay for her, you know, mm-hmm. whatever else like is needed. If there's like, you know, certainly if there's accommodation issues like alcoholism, like certain things that are bringing out this type of behavior, there's that. Like there's so many way, like more holistic solutions that you can apply that, in fact, employers are obligated to do um, that before they pull the, f- the ultimate trigger of, of letting someone go. Um, so the next question, when at first glance, it doesn't seem interesting. And the question is, have you ever been sexually harassed at work? 29% of women under 35 said yes. 63% said no. But there's this 8% mm. that doesn't know or has no opinion. Hmm. Meanwhile, women over 35, 33% said yes. So there's a four-point difference between women under 35. The same amount said no, so also 63. Mm-hmm. But there are fewer people who, or fewer women who have no opinion or aren't sure. And so this is interesting be- to me because, like, why is that that middle part for women under 35 so much larger, like roughly, let's say five percentage points. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting. So I'm not sure how this polling works and if there is a margin of error to speak of. But the idea, I think it's interesting too to look at why people don't know and why they may not have an opinion. And I, I think I would even answer that myself that way um, because I think there's so many things that were in terms of um, harassment, which is so commonplace. I kind of want to say, yes, I probably have, but then also no, because I've shut my mind off from having to address that. And actually, now that I think about it, the answer is yes, because I could just thought of an example. But <laughs> but my first instinct is to be like, ah, maybe not. I don't know. Ah, that sounds so serious. Do I really want to commit to saying that that's happened to me? I don't, I don't know if it's yeah. been that bad. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, because, you know, when I had one of my first jobs in government seven or eight years ago the guy who the man older man Mm -hmm. who worked next to me 
knew my father and mm. had worked with my father and you know he was like entirely harmless yeah just like very very nice we had nice chats and like some days i'd be wearing a dress or a skirt and he'd be like oh like oh that like your shoes or your dress like makes your legs look so sexy like Oof. which like i knew he didn't mean anything like sexual by it but like yeah it's still harassment. Yeah. It's completely unnecessary and inappropriate for the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at the time, I wouldn't have considered it harassment. But yeah. like thinking about it now, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's uh, crossing a line. Yeah. but then, And that's the other thing. People start to rationalize and say things um, like, you know, not as bad or yeah, he didn't mean much by it and may have voted, may have had the same experience and voted differently in this poll for that reason. Um, and then in the workplace, like that example that I was thinking of was um, like uh, a client relationship, not a colleague. So that also, you know, like how you consider work mm-hmm. and who's responsible and and, and I mean, th- that should be no different whether a client or a colleague harasses you or a bot and a manager uh, in a workplace, you're, it's still within your employment context and your employer is still has some responsibility but I'm sure for some people, they may not think of, you know, they may make distinctions based on any number of things or a colleague during off-duty hours or in a semi-professional setting or whatever else, right? People have these delineations in their minds about what yeah, that all means. Yeah, and I, weirdly, I've also been sexually harassed by, like, by, like, a third party. Mm-hmm. So, like, I was at a conference at my a friend's office the conference ended. Her and I met for coffee. And as we were having coffee together, two of her colleagues walked by and they like like stared at us. And then she like waved to them and like uh, they, I don't know, didn't, they did something. And she was like, that's weird. Went back up to them and they were like, oh, who was your hot friend? Like, oh, she was so sexy and like just like sexualizing me. I'm like, this is entirely inappropriate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so this, this difference of younger women under 35, not knowing what, whether or not they've been sexually harassed, skipping ahead, um, women of different ages generally agree on what constitutes sexual harassment. So if someone makes sexualized jokes or sexual comments that make you feel uncomfortable, did you consider that harassment? 78% of women under 35 said yes. And 70% of women over 35 said yes. Um, and if someone touched you in a way that made you feel uncomfortable, would you consider that harassment? 85% of women under 35 said yes. And 92% of women under over 35 said yes. Um, but here's where it gets interesting. Flirting with a coworker is either acceptable, unacceptable, or unsure. Women under 35 said it was acceptable 40% of the time. And 49% said it was un- unacceptable. So 11% of women under 35 aren't sure like how they, what their opinion is on workplace flirting. Hmm. Meanwhile, women over 35, 64% say that workplace flirting is unacceptable. And sorry, this is with a coworker. Mm. Um, whereas women over 35, only 29% said that it was acceptable. Hmm. So this is probably where some of that that difference comes in as to whether or not you've been sexually harassed at work. Mm-hmm. Because is it flirting? Is it not, you know, kind of that justification thing you were talking about? 
Yeah. But I mean, personally, I'm I'm okay with flirting in the workplace, provided you are able to read my signals and know that I'm not interested because there gets a point where it beca- does become harassment. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, and it, it's, look, it's it's tough, right? Because you do meet, especially after, like, you know, a certain age and how much you spend time you spend at work and whatever else. Like, you may meet, only meet, be meeting new people yeah. or, or interacting with people in the workplace or if you've worked there for a long time, you develop closer and closer relationships. Like, you know, it's it, sometimes just things are unavoidable. Um, so it's well, hard to, you can't, just, yeah, draw a, a stark line. Yeah, and like, particularly in a place, in a city like Ottawa, where it's big enough, but it's not so big where yeah. you aren't like one or two degrees of separation from someone. Yeah. Um, so there's a good chance that you've dated or, you know, seriously or casually someone you've worked with particularly because it's a government town and mm-hmm. a lot of people here are in government. You know, I'm sure that a lot of people listening who work in government can say that they've dated someone that mm-hmm. they else in government that they will very likely. Yeah. They know, may cross paths in the future. Exactly. For sure. And yeah. I know I'm one of those people. Yeah. A lot of ghosts in this town. I'll tell you. Oof, yeah. Sometimes I think about moving just to broaden <laughs> the dating pool. <laughs> <laughs> um, Anyways, so skipping ahead again, women over 35 generally tend to be more optimistic about the Me Too movement, um, with 55% of them um, thinking that it, women will experience lower rates of sexual assault and harassment compared to only 47% of women under 35. How do you feel about that, Amy? Um, I mean, that's that's interesting. I think for... I know we can only sort of like infer from from these results, but I wonder um, if that comes from uh, older women having a perspective on the history of these types of movements and moments in time. Um, And I think for a lot of people um, who are supportive of the Me Too movement really do feel uh, this is the first time we've had a conversation that's like, like you've, there's something different about it. Like as a moment, there's some, something in the spirit of it and the way that it's being reported and the um, fact that the media hasn't turned away from it and every day there's a new angle to it. It hasn't fizzled out in the way that most of these types of things are. Um, Activism is getting reported, I mean, not in the best way, but in a much different and more positive light than it ever has. Yeah, I, I can see why there is that sort of a bit of a generational uh, difference because there is a longer history, a longer memory. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas maybe for for young folks, they're too close to it to kind of see. But I I don't know. That's sort of just to project from from that. But yeah, hard to say. Yeah, um, I think the results of the survey are very interesting. I do wish it separated it down into smaller age groups. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Yeah. Because I want to see some of the the like if some of the data skews for much older women, yeah. like who are in their mid to late forties and fifties. Yeah, because people over thirty five aren't second. I mean, whatever. T- say what you will about the waves and how we make those distinctions in feminism, but someone over thirty five and someone who's sixty or you know seventy has very different associations with feminism that's not to say they there are definitely seven-year-olds who are radical feminists and there are yeah you know 
30 year olds who are set quite the second waivers, but, um, but it does give you uh, a bit of a sense of what they've experienced generationally and, and historically and can kind of help us process a little bit more of how they got to the positions. But. Yeah. And I would, I would, again, be interested to find out more demographic data. Like I always want yeah. more information. Yeah, totally. Give us your metadata. I want to know <laughs> the rural urban divide. Yeah. I want to know the political leanings. I want to know yeah. whether or not these women are in supervisory and executive positions. Oh yeah, of course. Like changes their perspective from that for sure. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Anyway. I mean, it's fa it's fascinating. I I just definitely feel that there is still a generational divide. I know that the survey sort of makes it seem a bit more of a wash, but we don't really know why people are answering the way they're answering. But it does it does make me feel a bit more optimistic. At the same time, I think um, there is a vocal and dismissive attitude of women of a certain generation uh, towards what younger women are saying generally. Um, and I don't know that maybe it's just a vocal minority of uh, an older demographic. Um, and uh, if that's the case, they're not really helping yeah. uh, the cause. But, uh, yeah, it's been frustrating to, to hear some 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 women re yeah, reflecting back or being dismissive of uh, the work young folks are doing to bring these things to light. Well, that does it for this week in feminism. <laughs> Now we're on to rent and receipts. This is where we each bring a story to share with the others and then rant about it. Duh. So my uh, rent and receipt is about uh, the, I guess, backlash towards Ragmeet Singh uh, that we've seen in the me play out in the media and in, I'm sure, many other spaces about uh, Jagmeet's involvement um, at a rally that uh, involved folks calling for um, an independent uh, Sikh state and headlines that are reading things like the NDP leader Jagmeet Singh linked to Sikh rapper who promotes independent homeland. Like very tenuous connections as well as his uh, speaking um, at a rally that included other um, folks who had different or so-called more radical views on uh, Khalistani independence movements or appearing in places that had flown a Khalistani independence flag. Um, and a lot of uh, a lot a lot of the discussion is centered around this idea that um, Jagmeet Singh has um, not done enough to disavow these uh, so-called extremist views um, and. Not uh, not surprisingly, people at the fore of this uh, tend to be uh, on the right, but there are also people on the left of the spectrum who are really um, disappointed um, in uh, Singh's lack of a clear admonishment of, uh, of terrorism, which I find really frustrating. So uh, I think what I wanted to reflect on a little bit is... Um, sort of the the nuance of what Jagmeet Singh's position has been and why it's frustrating to see Canadian media report this in such a um, haphazard, very superficial manner. Um, so Jagmeet Singh himself wrote uh, an op-ed uh, a couple of weeks ago now, or maybe a week ago, I'm losing track of the days. <laughs> they all kind of blend together. With <laughs> They're this. all blending. Um, it's that time of year, too, where you're like, what season is this? Um, so in the Globe and Mail, he writes this really beautiful, thoughtful op-ed about, um, you know, growing up and find, like coming to terms or learning about his, his Sikh, not just his faith, but the, the 
the political history um, of what it is to be a Sikh and what the separatism uh, movement for Sikhs in India is like, as well as the genocide uh, that um, and Sikh and persecution of Sikh people in India. And he says, you know, I was really angry to learn this when my parents uh, told me about this. Um, I was, I, there was an anger. There was, for them, there was a lot of pain. I didn't really understand it. They were loving, caring, generous, and thoughtful people, but they were also suffering. And he talks about sort of his um, growing up to address um, or, or to work through that sort of trauma um, and what it is an intergenerational trauma that not only his parents faced, but he saw in his, in the Sikh community. Um, people who were, um, who shared his faith, who were systematically persecuted, targeted, attacked, uh, thousands who were slaughtered um, because of their faith. And that's, and that is the, the history um, uh, for Sikh people um, in India and what, and then what it means to carry forward from that trauma as members of a diaspora here in Canada, where, um, you know, the, the chances and opportunities to work through that is different than folks who are still back home who are engaging in those political structures. But for members of the diaspora, having the space to even talk about these issues. And so his participation in um, the Sikh movement in Canada and attending these sorts of events where people with a variety of views come to meet and interact. So some with, quote unquote, more extreme views, these separ more separatist uh, perspectives, um, perspectives of self-determination, as well as those, which I wouldn't say are extreme, I'd say those are pretty middle-of-the-road views. Um, and then on the, on the more extreme end, folks who may have uh, ties to um, uh, terrorism or, or more um, aggressive tactics. And essentially saying, you know, uh, what I wanted to do was, was, and what I've always been doing is trying to have these harsh conversations. Um, you know, and he says, I've been asked many times about terrorism. Uh, each time I speak as clearly as I can, I condemn all acts of terrorism in every part of the world, regardless of the perpetrators are and who the victims are. Um, and it goes on to say, terrorism should never be seen as a way to advance a cause of any group. It only leads to more suffering, more pain and death. Um, and, and refers to Canadian history, um, uh, with the Air India bombings, which, um, were linked to seek, um, uh, extremist terrorists, um, and, and the inquiry, but then says, you know, what that moment in time, the impact for a lot of people, um, though they accepted the findings and, and felt horrified, um, by what had happened, um, many, um, others have not accepted the findings of the Air India Inquiry as fact. Um, and he, and, and, and that comes from a place of pain, a pain, you know, uh, and as well as a social dislocation. And so his approach is, how do I speak to those people? How do I, um, you know, reach them in a way that they can understand. Um, and it's not to dismiss them and it's not to, um, it only exist in spaces with like-minded people, but to go in and confront and help work through that trauma. Um, and he says he's proud of the work that he's done with the Sikh community. And this has been met, um, one, one of those, those tenuous ties to people who may support an independent Khalistan, which it doesn't necessarily mean supporting terrorism. It means supporting an independence movement, which I think scares a lot of Canadians. Like, we don't have good terms with independence. Yeah, um, we we're very we're, closely yeah. associated with Quebec. And yeah, with Quebec and also with indigenous um, independence movements uh, as well. And the idea of self-determination here is very... Um, taboo and we're kind of um, 
shut it out from our history a little bit. Like in terms of rest of Canada, I think for Quebecers, it's a little bit different, a little bit more real for Indigenous people that they are asking for self-determination. And we keep glossing over it and saying we're trying to create, you know, reconciliation, but we're not really talking about self-determination. And that's an intentional position that uh, Canadians have taken or Canadian state has taken. Um, and so there's... a, a yeah, a huge wanting to distance uh, ourselves from that. And it what's frustrating, I think, for a lot of people who are closed to issues of self-determination or, um, uh, you know, members of diaspora community who come from places that have experienced conflict, there's a huge frustration, I think, in seeing this story play out. Certainly for me, I'm really frustrated by it. A lot of people who um, have s shared this views such as, you know, I, well, I guess I can never run for office or I guess I can never take a public position because I have been in the room with people who may have had different views or may be part of uh, a movement that didn't succeed or a self, you know, perspective on self-determination that isn't shared by the West. Um, and, you know, these conflicts and these histories, we're so ignorant first of all, in our Western education around international <laughs> conflicts and histories. Um, I don't think anyone knows what the fuck like the Sikh history is in, and what, what Khalistan is, like what that dynamic in India is. That people seem to have a limited view of Indira Gandhi as being, you know, this magnanimous, magnanimous you know, female prime minister and, and, and not really know that she actually engaged in um, this sort of genocidal um, treatment of, of Sikh people and, and forced sterilization. And like, there's all sorts of eugenics, like weird things that happened that we have no knowledge of um, in the West. And, you know, diaspora communities very real to them, still very fresh. They brought, they carried that trauma. Um, they have those experiences um, and can't talk about them. And we won't give the space to talk about these issues without saying you have to condemn everyone um, who has committed any terrorism before you even have the right to speak. Um, responses have been really disheartening too to see people's comments um, and letters to the other editors coming out with people saying, you know, you know, Jagmeet Singh, here's one that I enjoy, may be ready to represent all Canadians, but until we know he doesn't have another agenda, why should Canadians be ready to have him represent us? Like, what other agenda could he have, and, like, why would you assume that? It, yeah, they're just basically making excuses for him because they don't like that he's not white yeah he's racialized he's visible he's visibly uh, practices a, a, a clear religious faith yeah. um in in both dress conduct and in how he's he's very vocal about it um and that puts people off and there's this idea of an inherent bias that if you're racialized you have a bias and you have loyalties that are elsewhere yeah. and we can't trust that you can represent all canadians and yet we don't apply the same standard to like people like andrew Shear, who may have loyalties to a particular subset of canadians certainly I would argue white Canadians and has yeah. not disavowed extremist right wing views. Or people who are very evangelical in their Christianity. Right, that's right. Yeah. And and not other forms of of either faith or, or atheism or whatever secularism. Um and he's maybe pro you know biasing and privileging their views constantly yeah. and may have another type of agenda and like yeah, yeah. just yeah, we don't <laughs> why do we assume that just because Jagmeet is not white that he has another agenda because he went to some things where there are people who had extreme views. Okay, cool. Um, 
I'm pretty sure that if there were, there was a smoking gun, they would find it. Oh, that's it. I mean, all of the, it's so reaching. Like he, he is friends or knows a rapper or attended an event with a rapper who had like, that's so far removed from what, like at him actually holding a particular view. And you're right. If it existed, we'd have it. He's been vocal. He's given speeches at these rallies. None of his speeches have like pointed to any like views held himself. It's the absence of a, the word, like, using the language that we would like him to use. Yeah. And ignoring the fact, even his, even in his first interview with where Terry Molesky asked him, uh, right off the bat in a six-minute interview, his first interview as the newly elected leader of the NDP to disavow terrorism, he asked, and he's and Jagmeet starts to answer and say, well, you know, I don't want people, I want people to know that this is the history before they get to this conclusion because I don't want people to be demonized. And then Terry starts interrupting him, saying, no, no, but how do you denounce? Do you like do you categorically? And it's like. He's trying to give you history. He's trying to educate the public because he knows there is a racist, prejudicial assumption that people are approaching this question with. Mm-hmm. And the assumption is that terrorism is pervasive in the Sikh community. And it, what he was trying to say, and he's later clarified and he says so eloquently in this op-ed, is that that is a, a minority view. But uh, there's also a lot of... Um, is you know trauma that people are carrying and in order to help them heal we can't just dismiss um certain things outright or we can't continue to propagate the myth that all Sikhs are were on board with the Air India bombing because that will only bring greater derision towards the community and I want people to know what our community stands for and that you know <laughs> there are these complexities and 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 you know have a more meaningful conversation yeah we don't have meaningful conversations, frankly, in in Canada. It it is just platitudes. It is just image. It, it is image driven. We speak to the lowest common denominator, and whenever there is a policy debate on any issue, we we speak to the the view that people already have or the majority view that people have, rather than educating them to get the best policies put in place. Um, and it's and I and I get that that's electoral politics, but. We're talking about the first racialized and the first, you know, minority practicing religious leader in North America. Yeah. Like, this is fucking important. And people need to treat it differently and not like, and I don't mean like treat it critically and treat it with uh, a different kind of approach. Um, And, you know, another, another critique being that the NDP need to also stand behind their leader and not take this shit. Um, and support him. And unfortunately, I haven't heard too many people from the party come up and support uh, Jagmeet's position or applaud applaud him for what he's doing. And um, I think that's unfortunate. It's sort of been made to be Jagmeet's problem and not the party's problem. And that that's really too bad. But um, yeah, where's the party been on this? I, I don't know. It's really it's really disappointing to see. And I think that's a big issue for the NDP uh, in general. They don't know what to do with um racialized candidates and racialized members of parliament or or give voice to these issues they they really don't they do honestly i don't want to be overly critical because i think there are some good things obviously that the party does but a lot of the time on foreign policy and on issues that affect racialized people they almost use a tone of white savior complex like Mm. We have we have this mo- we have the most progressive view, but they don't really get like you know and and here here's how um, you know 
critical we are on this issue intellectually, but they don't do a good job of giving power to people to speak to those issues. Um, whether it's from within the party or in the in communities, they don't do work with respective communities affected by these issues well, and they don't do a good job of bringing people up through the party right. um, from those communities either. Um, and that's a real problem for a, a left a left wing party that that hold, that's you know apparently holds these views. I don't want to hear, you know well-intentioned <laughs> white politicians speak to this. Like there was a time and place for that. And, and I think those people have done a, a great service in a lot of ways to shifting some conversations or bringing, you know, good legislation forward. Or, but it's not enough. And it's, 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 we're, that time has passed. Yeah. I think that's, if channeling Erica, I think Erica would say that that's been a large, is a large mm. problem with kind of liberals and progressives is that, they're good on, um, you know, labor things. They're good on health care. They're good on all these things, but they're, they still have fucked up racial politics. Yeah, I mean, look, like the party did, you know, take some good stances around um, people being, caught, like, for example, caught overseas and, like, not brought back because mm -hmm. of terrorist links, like... Um, Taliban detainees issues like this is going far back but like um, taking um, critical um, approaches to conflicts that a lot of Canadians hadn't turned their minds to like in um, the Congo and you know like those th you know those things do come up and um, they seem to be the only party that speaks to those issues but again it's kind of from a very development like big D development standpoint that's like again like you know very internationalist but without being rooted in again the diaspora communities here mm -hmm. that are doing that work do you know what I mean like it's more like here's their international mission that we think is like valuable right instead of you know working working it up from a, a Canadian perspective sure. of, of folks here who may be closer to the issue and can can bring more than that academic bookishness that the left is so fond of. So my rent of receipts this week is a video clip that was posted to Twitter this past weekend. Um, it was a clip from a CPAC show. So CPAC in Canada is the Cable Public Affairs Channel, not the conservative conference in <laughs> the United States. Very important distinction. Same acronym, not the same. It's our C-SPAN, yes. if you're an American viewer. Yes. <laughs> Listener. Um... And so it's Canada's only privately owned commercial free, not-for-profit, bilingual licensed television service. Basically where we watch, like, the House of Commons in the daytime. So they had a show over the weekend, a panel, uh, primetime politics weekend, uh, hosted by Martin Stringer. He was joined by uh, two journalists, Robert Fife, the Ottawa bureau chief from the Globe and Mail, and Katie O'Malley, who is kind of a freelancer, but uh, I believe was repping iPolitics at this specific moment. And they were talking about many things, uh, including the marathon 21-hour vote in the House of Commons last week, new firearms legislation, uh, peacekeeping missions in Mali, and uh, the announcement by the government following the budget that they will be launching a Canada-wide consultation on systematic racism in Canada. 
And this is related to the anti-Islamophobia discussions that happened in 2017. So the clip, um, (laughs) I, I I just don't know what to say about it. Um, So the tweet that came with the clip, it said, Robert Fife, the Ottawa bureau chief of the nation's paper of record, does not seem to know what systemic racism even means. He thinks it's about whether teenagers of different backgrounds hang out together. So in the clip, Robert Fife, or Bob Fife, as he's more commonly known as, basically says that the liberal government is overstepping and is telling people how to think, and this is seen in their things like their study on systemic racism in Canada. And he goes off, what even is systemic racism? We don't even have that thing. We've got kids of all backgrounds hanging out together. You don't see the Chinese kids hanging out with the Chinese kids. You don't see the South Asians hanging out with the South Asians. Everyone hangs out together. We all get along. First off. <laughs> Go on. As someone who went to high school that was probably 60 to 70% Chinese, 100% the Chinese kids hung out with the Chinese <laughs> kids. We had two buildings. One was basically where all the Chinese kids hung out at lunchtime. Yeah. We never hung out there, my friends and I. Yeah. We didn't go there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. He's talking about segregation, first of all. Cultural segregation, not like a, you know, legal segregation. Yeah. Which in some places doesn't happen as much as other places where it certainly still happens for a multitude of reasons. Yes. Some of which include systemic racism, which he does not understand. Yes. <laughs> um, he completely fails to understand that systemic racism is not about whether or not you have friends of different races. Mm-hmm. It is the racism built into the systems that oppress people that aren't white or for any sort of difference that they have that isn't the mainstream. This is what we talk about. And Erica is going to be so pissed that she's not (laughs) here because we talk about on this very podcast, the fact that Canadian media is filled with white gatekeepers and Bob Fife as the Ottawa bureau chief of the country's paper record is an example of this. So, you know, we've got the the appropriation prize that happened last year, mm. and you've got the CBC people, you've got other reporters and editors throwing their hat into the ring, th- making that some sort of a joke. But then you've got the person driving and shaping political content for the country, and many people get their n- news from newspapers only and not just yeah. the internet telling you what to think because, but he doesn't understand what systemic racism is. I mean, it makes me wonder what other concepts he doesn't seem to grasp or the fact that he's done n- no work to educate himself. Like if I heard a word like systemic racism, would I just jump to the conclusion and it, having not heard it or not know what it means? As a journalist, like shouldn't your first impulse and based on your training be to like, I don't know, find out the definition, educate yourself, like, you know, get caught up. Like it makes no sense um, that he would just like... Well, it makes sense because, I mean, it's white male arrogance to assume that, like, like that's where that comes from. 
that that sense that he much surely like knows enough to dis like backhandedly dismiss a government policy that's taken years to get off the ground and like you know a lot of work that's like gone into like getting this going and all the community groups calling for it without even consulting anyone to know what it actually means but it's it's probably a view that's held by so many other people like there's no doubt in my mind that that misunderstanding and that's saying it generously um is shared by a lot of folks in this town who are reporting on these issues i i wouldn't be surprised um or maybe they think they know what it means and maybe they have part a part of it right but they don't fully get um the scope of what people mean when they talk about systemic racism um because it's a big it's a big heady issue it's not um you know, it's not a cat, like it sort of functions as a catch all phrase, but it, it uh, there's a lot of work that's been done to, to get to our understanding of what it means. Um, we're so f like the fact that this program is going ahead, that these consultations are going ahead is a long time coming. Um, and <laughs> this is like their backwards, you know, response that we're getting from media. Yeah. And like the consultations aside, like on the one end, I think they're good and important. On the other hand, I think they're a waste of money personally because I know that their systemic racism exists. Mm -hmm. I don't need a consultation to tell me that that happens. But I guess well, they're some people... They're consulting to know what solutions people want. That's what they'd say. I mean, I don't know. I think a lot has been written about it and a lot of organizations have done this work that I don't know yes. that the government is the best p p place to replicate the, what, the work that's already been done. But whatever, do it, get it done. Well, that's exactly the, the point is that like they can't, why don't we take people's lived experiences as gospel and be like, oh, cool. Um, like the event that Erica went on anti-black racism, they, yeah. they did a study, yeah. they wrote a report, yeah. they're presenting it to them. Yeah. Cool. Take those recommendations and implement them. So what, It's like the yeah. Truth and Reconciliation yeah. um report yeah so with the city hall thing the report was written by the city for all women initiative cowie which um did their own consultations did a lot of work and research they have a, like a very you know cool and grounded steering committee that did a lot of outreach with the black community and with other racialized communities and came to um, some great recommendations. And then the idea for the event was for the panel to speak to the community and say what they had done. And clearly they had done nothing. And it's just like, like, what are you waiting for? Like, we did the work for you. We're out here doing this. So you, like, all you have to do is <laughs> like follow through. Um, and then as Erica pointed out, like, there's no, like, no um, systematic response from you know, police force saying, this is what we're going to do. These are our targets. Yeah. This is the program that we're going to in, 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 install to fix what's been rightfully pointed out. They they all acknowledge there's anti-black racism, which is certainly a step in the right direction and more radical uh, stance than may have been held otherwise. But I think it's simply because they know it's untenable to say otherwise at this juncture. Yeah. They don't really have solutions for it, nor have they picked up on what their, like how much work it would be entailed or what their duties are to actually make like counteract anti-black racism um so i mean this is the same police you know police force that's arguing that carding has is the reason that you know <laughs> crime rates have gone up right as right. we've like covered so it's like i don't think that they've actually done the thinking they're just kind of going through the motions but 
Well, and the reason, and the thing is, I can't imagine the police in Ottawa taking any of those recommendations uh, into consideration because they would need to do their own examination of whether or not there was anti-black racism. Yeah, like, like, that, and like, that's like they're exactly not. What's yeah, they're not. This. They're not uh, taking uh, that report to mean much as it as it applies to them, other than a suggestion. Yeah, but uh, going back to Bob Fife, like a lot of people, well, some people I know who saw this and uh, were frustrated by it. Not many people were surprised, but they kind of wrote him off being like, oh, he's super old. He's like 70. We can't expect him to know that. Actually, you know what? As a, a gatekeeper to the media, I think you should know. Otherwise, you're just giving him an excuse and continuing to totally make excuses for him to just stay the same and not improve and challenge himself and... You know, generally, I've found journalists to be intellectually curious. and They you know, ought to be. Exactly. It makes me call into question all the journalism he does. Well, yeah. <laughs> like, he clearly is ill-equipped to cover anything. Yeah. Um, it's... Uh... Like, and the way he gave that answer was just, like... So like he he was so incredulous and as if like how dare you ask me this question yeah. and the idea he was offended he was offended and the and his whole thing that the liberals are thought policing people is like peak paranoia conspiracy theory right wing nonsense yeah the, the systemic like addressing systemic racism is not thought policing it's addressing policy like it's ca- well that's because his definition's categorically wrong but like it's not thought policing no. Also, we already have laws against discrimination and hate crimes. So, like, what year would you like us to go back to Bob Fife? Because those laws have been on the books forever, if that's what you mean by thought policing. That yeah. we ought not to. Like, <laughs> like, what? Honestly, maybe it is the ramblings of a, you know, senile old person. In which case, then he should be, l- like, re-examining whether or not he continues in his career as a journalist if he's not fit. But that's not what's happening here. This is someone who's rooted in his privilege. We shouldn't dismiss him for his age or like acumen because otherwise like you have a bigger problem that this guy is the head of the Ottawa Bureau Chief. Like as the Ottawa Bureau Chief. Just like complete nonsense. But why CPAC? Is this the person that you invite and pose this question also, to? Also, why CPAC? Are you talking about <laughs> A study on systemic racism with only white people. I don't. I don't know how either of those. Fo- I'm like, you know, they're gonna say we ask them because they know the political landscape, and they're answering from a, a po- political part, like perspective of of tactics and strategy, and whether or not putting the like. But anyone can comment on that. Anyone who is around Ottawa, and there are tons of journalists who anyone at least who, have some nuance. And yes, to bring anyone to who's this. around Ottawa, but anyone who's like tuned into an in enough to like yeah think about it on a regular basis yeah like they just go to these same old voices over and over again yeah to fill these panels and we don't know and and of course no one is ever saying well what's bob fife's bias <laughs> like you know yeah. Like, you know, what's questioning that it's like assumed that he is we like assume, a voice yeah. of authority and exactly. like can speak clearly on because behalf of he's anyone. Got X amount of years of experience. Yeah. And uh, whiteness means neutrality. Yeah. <laughs> oh, fuck it. Fuck it. But completely. also, CPAC, holla at your girls. <laughs> so that does it for this episode. Um, Amy, any, any parting words? 
Um, I don't I don't know that I have any um, other than to say let's all go bowling sometime. <laughs> <laughs> oh, also, um, check out our website, badandbitchy.com, because we have a feminist advice column. Ooh, yeah. And we wrote a sassy one last week. <laughs> um, it was in response to the, the CBC opinion piece that Amy mentioned earlier in the episode about Headley. And uh, just some advice for all you Headley fans out there. And for anyone who has, who likes a problematic fave. It's definitely an evergreen post, but especially uh, amusing in in light of that. Yes. (laughs) And if you have any questions that you want us to answer, send us an email. We're answering them earnestly, sometimes sassily, sometimes more, you know, (laughs) a little bit more heart. So any question is very much welcomed, any sort of question. Yes. And we will be off for the Easter break. So we will be back in two weeks. <laughs> Don't miss us too much. Yeah. Um, as always, we want to thank Media Style for letting us use your space. Media Style is a progressive public affairs agency located in Ottawa. They are a social enterprise making Canada a better place. You can find us on Twitter at Bad and Bitchy, on Instagram at Bad and Bitchy Pod, on Facebook.com slash Bad and B Podcast, and email us badandbpod at gmail.com. Bye. Bye.